If you have your Bibles, we'd ask that you open up to the book of Philippians. We are, if you're just joining us, we're going through the letter to the Philippians. Last week, we did the introduction, which was Acts chapter 16. You should download it, listen to it. It kind of give you a sense of the direction that we are going. Uh, this morning, we're in Philippians chapter 1 in the first 11 verses. And as I was preparing, I was remembering, uh, because this is a letter to a church plant, I was remembering the first days of planting the first church I led many years ago, back in 2006. And those uh, were the days when we gathered in the living room of the house I live in now, uh, when we got really big, like 20 people. We graduated to my garage, which was lined with black plastic and lawn chairs I had borrowed from the neighbors. Sounds cultish, looked cultish. It was a little weird, to be honest with you, but it felt like we were doing God's will. In time, the church grew. Every family that showed up brought like four kids, so we got big really quickly. And by big, I mean like 50 people. We bought a trailer. I bought it against my house, filled it with a bunch of stuff we probably didn't need, and began to set up church for several years at a small elementary school. Now, um, we, again, as many are familiar with, set up, tear down every Sunday, we gathered in homes during the week. We held retreats, if you can call them those, on the weekends at times. And we piggybacked on outreach events that much bigger churches uh, had organized and we just were able to participate in. And it was a difficult season. It was hard. But at the same time, it was incredibly beautiful and wonderful. And we had no buildings. We had no money. We had no staff. We had no assets. We had no real programs. We had nothing but a real love for Jesus and a love for one another. Everyone was known by everyone. Everyone was loved by everyone. Everyone was committed to everyone. And everyone was unified with everyone because there wasn't that many of us. And as we grew over the years, we remained unified around the same gospel mission. But things changed. As unified as we were, it did become less intimate. Um, everyone didn't necessarily know everyone as well as they knew others. And that wasn't a bad thing. It was a quite natural thing. I believe it's the story of every church plant that eventually is established as a church. Now, people change. As things go on, programs change. Even pastors change through these journeys. But what is not supposed to change is our love for Jesus and the love for one another, even if everything else changes, which it invariably does. I was reminded, because I'm once an English teacher, Sonnet 116, you know, the Shakespeare you hated to study. But in Sonnet 116, at the very end of the sonnet, it says this about love. It said, love is not love which alters when an alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken, is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although its height be taken. Essentially, Shakespeare says, love doesn't change when it finds change. It remains, it stays the long haul. 
Paul loves the church of Philippi, and you'll sense that as you read this letter to this church. But it's noteworthy that the church has changed tremendously since he planted it five years prior. It's likely he hasn't visited it in those five years. And it's likely that it has grown a little bit from the three converts we met in Acts 16, which was a woman named Lydia, a small or young girl who was demon-possessed at one point, and a Roman jailer. Those are the first, that was the core group. Well, the core group has grown quite a bit because according to the first verses of the letter, the church is now full of saints and deacons and overseers. In other words, the church is bigger, different, it's organized, it has appointed leadership, it's changed. Paul likely doesn't know most of the people in the church. And yet, as you read this letter, we see that his affection for them has grown exponentially, even though he is totally separated from them. Paul's letter overflows with a joy-filled thanksgiving for the one church in all of Macedonia who has supported him from the beginning. And even though, as I said, he's been physically separated from this church, their continued commitment to their church in Philippi and their continued commitment to support his ministry as he goes on other missionary journeys has actually fostered not just a sense of strong unity with one another, but actually it's generated incredible intimacy. Faithful commitment has actually grown their mutual affection for one another, even though they perhaps don't know each other that well and certainly haven't seen each other at all. So from his prison cell in Rome, Paul writes to thank them for the most recent gift that he has received from them. And this opportunity for thankfulness is used primarily to give instruction to the church about how to remain unified as they grow and as they suffer and as things change and even as they disagree about it all. That's really where Paul focuses. So if we take a look at the first couple verses of um, Philippians, verses one and two says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the tone of this letter as with any letter anyone writes, um, is unique, right? And this tone for this letter is different than some of the other letters Paul writes. If you were to look at the letter to the Galatians, you would see that that letter starts similar in structure, but different in the words. And Paul describes himself in the letter to Galatia as an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. It's very bold, it's very authoritative, and that's because the rest of the letter of the Galatia is actually an admonishment to the church because they have exchanged the true gospel for a false one, and they're following other leaders who have convinced them or bewitched them. So Paul says, look, I'm an apostle, 
Jesus made me an apostle, and what I'm going to say, you need to listen. Well, it's very different in Philippians. In Philippians, he starts by saying, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. And this word, which is a Greek word, doulos, it's an interesting word. It's translated differently in different translations. Here in the ESV, it says servant. If you were to look at the NASB, the New American Standard, you would see it says bond servant. And if you look at the CSB, which is the Christian Standard, that would say slave. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I like that translation, at least of this verse. And it's actually perhaps the most literal. Now, that's an uncomfortable word for us for lots of reasons. But in a letter that Paul will call the Philippians to be unified in the Lord, to consider others more important than themselves. How does he start? I'm a slave to Christ. One who is under authority. One who is owned. One whose life is dependent on and directed by a master. In our flesh, we don't like to be dependent on or directed by a master. We say very easily, just flows up our lips, Jesus is Lord. But there's part about having a Lord, having a king, having a master that our flesh doesn't like. And the truth is, we like lives that are me-centered. In our flesh, we're naturally me-centered. We make me-centered decisions. We really have relationships that are apt to be me-centered. Even our theology becomes me-centered. And no one who is me-centered and really self-oriented is ever going to be God-centered and other-oriented. And so there's a tension there. And this is why Paul starts this way. Because rightly viewing yourself as a slave to Jesus doesn't only impact your relationship with God. It actually impacts your relationship with others. If Christ is the controlling person in my life and it's not me, then that means my decisions, my attitudes, my perspectives are not defined by me. They're not to be dictated by my will or my plans or even my comforts. That's hard. Citizens of heaven are to be governed by the king, by Jesus' will, by Jesus' plans, and by Jesus' example. And this might not be a newsflash, Jesus' will sometimes conflicts with yours, as does Jesus' plans, as does Jesus' example. What I mean, it's hard to follow sometimes. Assuming the mentality, though, of a slave of Jesus, a true servant of Jesus, that changes how you live, how you view your whole life. Here's how Paul writes about it in Romans 14. I mean, think about just really living this out. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. That's ownership. This is how Paul begins his letter. I'm not 
my own. My life is not, and neither is yours. He continues his greeting or follows his greeting, telling them, look, whatever Jesus wants, I'm going to obey. Whatever, whomever Jesus loves, I'm going to love. Who, who, wherever he leads, I'm going to follow. But I'm super grateful for you guys. Here's what he says. It's pretty awesome. It's a letter. Some people call this just a Thanksgiving letter. It's like super thankful. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. This is where his joy is coming from. It's important. In the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you is going to bring it to its completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So, this letter is often described as the epistle of joy. And that's because Paul so frequently talks about joy or says rejoice always or different things all throughout the letter. And he's writing from prison, so that is itself noteworthy. But most of Paul's own joy is not found in particular things or circumstances. In fact, it is found in the actual people of Philippi, whom in chapter 4 of this letter he will actually call my joy. And so joyfully, Paul prays for these Philippians every time, all the time, uh, and particularly praying about their partnership with him. So ever since the church was planted, which was likely five-ish years prior to this, Philippi has faithfully supported him with gifts and with prayers, and they have participated in Paul's ministry. And near the end of the letter, as I already said, Paul will note like no other church in all the region of Macedonia, which is fairly large, supported him like the Philippians did. So there's a fantastically powerfully strong, affectionate relationship they naturally have, having supported him. When he was preaching the gospel, they were there to support him. When he was in prison, when he was defending the gospel, they stood with him always through thick and thin. And so he calls them fellow partakers of grace. Now, grace is a word we use all the time, and I don't think we define it enough. Grace is the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. Now, the kind of grace that they're partaking in, that he is expressing gratitude for, may surprise us because he's talking about the grace of suffering. Or said another way, the gift of of suffering. Paul has been suffering for his faith. He's in prison now suffering for his faith. He's been beaten multiple times for his faith. He has gotten all kinds of trouble for his faith. And the Philippians have experienced actually something similar. Now, in verse 29 of this chapter, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, it's, Paul says this, it has been granted to you. That's a big word. 
that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted that you suffer for Jesus. It is a gift that you are suffering for Jesus. And you're like, that's crazy. But Paul is talking about this gift of suffering and particularly the impact that it's had on their relationship. The truth is, suffering binds people together. I told the story earlier. There used to be a show called Survivor. I think it's still on. It's like season 174 or something. But like in the early days when it was like in the 90s, I remember being very faithfully watching it. And I was a high school teacher and my students really wanted me to apply. I may or may not have done that. <laughs> there may or may not be a video somewhere of part of that application, but that's not important. What is important is this. As you watch that show, the initial, initial like, shows, I don't know what they're like now, but they, a group of people got together, a group of strangers got together, and they went through a horrible experience. Like, they were like suffering. Yeah, I was on an island, but like, you know, they're like eating rice and drinking water and like just, just suffering. By the time they get done, they're like emaciated. And everyone's like, hey, you look great. Like, yeah, I'm starving. And, but the thing about it was after 30 days or 60 days, whatever it was, they are like best friends. And it's because suffering has this uh, binding experience with people. When you go through difficult things, suddenly you are really connected to one another. And even though Paul and Philippi are disconnected physically, they have experienced a shared kind of suffering that it's actually bound them together. And I would argue that even now in the midst of this pandemic we're experiencing, as we all endure, certainly we are enduring like the persecuted church has done in different parts of the world and even does today. But there's a level of endurance, there's a level of of suffering that we're having to experience, not just inconvenience, but real genuine difficulty. I would argue that as we endure, despite these discomforts, despite these irritations, despite even some of the injustices, our willingness to suffer together, even to gather together like this in our suffering, binds us together in a way that is hard to measure, but is beautiful. This is what's happening with Paul. The Philippians have been there, are there, and their commitment has really endured the test of time and difficulty. He's convinced that their faithful partnership, right, their commitment, what does that mean? Their commitment to keep going, to keep supporting, to keep going through the motions, if you will, of ministry and, and doing the things that they've always done, despite how hard it is, he says, that's evidence of God in you, evidence of God still working in you. The truth is we're all works in progress, but as God works, things always progress, that's the evidence of his grace in us. And so as an encouragement to them, like to keep going and to keep enduring, Paul assures the Philippians, look, God who started that work in you is going to finish it, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, because that work is largely not dependent upon you. He's doing something in you. 
We know that because Lydia, the first convert, if you look back in Acts 16, it doesn't say like she was totally convinced what Paul said. And she says, the Lord opened her heart. God saved her. Paul was a tool. And the same grace that saves is the same grace that keeps saving and keeps moving and keeps changing. So Paul is telling him stuff like, like he wants, God's not done with you. And this suffering, this difficulty, that is evidence of God doing something. He is changing us. He is shaping us. He is building us. He is not done with you. Until Jesus returns or you return to him, you are continually being renovated by God. So he tells the Philippians, look, I want to remind you of your salvation, but I also want to remind you of your sanctification. That yes, in that moment you believed, you had everything that you ever need in Christ, but over time you're becoming everything he intends for you to be in him. And so what that really shows is that Paul's affection isn't dependent upon their perfection because they're not perfect yet. They're flawed. They're weak. They make mistakes. They do dumb things. But yet, even in their imperfection, he yearns for them, right? He yearns for them. At the end of Philippians, he would say, I love, I long for you. And he says, yes, affection of Christ longing for you, loving you, affection for you. Is that how you feel about your brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm not telling you whether you should or shouldn't. I'm saying, is that how you feel? And not for everybody, right? You can't have that kind of affection for every brother and sister in Christ you know. But is there a group of brothers and sisters in Christ within the body virtue? Like, oh man, I've got an affection. I yearn to be with them. It feels like COVID has done a number on our affection. Like the separation has caused us to, to question that affection, to wonder about that affection, to forget that affection. And we have to wonder what kind of affection we have for each other because Paul says this is not just affection, it's the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ is an affection like Christ. And Christ's affection is unique. Think about Christ's affection for us. His love for us is not based on what we do or don't do. It's based on who he says we are in him. Christ looks past our weaknesses. Did you know that? His love looks past your failures. And I didn't past it. He sees it in order to look past it. Like, it's not like he's like, oh, I didn't see that failure there. All those inadequacies, all those foibles, all those quirks and irritations that are you. He loves you unconditionally and relentlessly. His love is the one that believes all things and endures all things and hopes all things. And his love is the one that never ends. This is the kind of affection we're taught. Like when he says, I love you with the affection of Christ. You know, just like, 
I really like you guys. It's a certain kind of affection. And so the question for all of us, how do we, how do we reignite or, or, or ignite that kind of affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, Paul gives us an indication of how this happens. How does Paul do it? He says in the very beginning, he prays. But what does he pray? He's praying thanksgiving. But what is he thankful for? He's thankful remembering their partnership. So follow me if you would. Many of us have been together a long time. And what do I mean by that? So this church in many ways represents three churches. You've got the church formerly known as Damascus Road. You've got Redemption. And now you've got Bridge City. And by God's providence, he's brought us all together to be this one church called Restoration Road. But if we just for a second remember those experiences and those journeys with those people, So I'll speak from my perspective coming from Damascus Road. And I'll try not to cry. Because many of us have been together a really long time. It is. 15 years. 15 years. And in the other expressions of redemption or Bridge City, you guys have been together a long time too. Certainly longer than Paul was with Philippi. But a long time. And I imagine if you're anything like me, you've got some awesome memories. Awesome memories. Times when we ministered together, times when we laughed together, times when we cried together, times when we failed together, times when we succeeded together. And all that time in the service to Christ, right? Paul remembers all of that. And it's that past unity that even in the midst of being separated produces intimacy, produces affection. That stuff's not to be forgotten, it's to be the energy to get us through the times of suffering, the times of difficulty. As we make new memories, because five years from now, we will have other memories, and we'll be going, wow, remember that, remember that, and oh, remember that. So the affection that Paul has here, the affection of Christ, is so powerful and so necessary for every church. But there's, there's more. Paul isn't just like, oh, let's just dwell on the past and celebrate, which we should celebrate. He looks to the future, and in verses 9 through 11, he says what he is hopeful for. Because he didn't just say, I pray for you guys, and I remember, he says, this is my prayer for you. And he actually tells him what he prays. He says, my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So let's take a look 
for a second of what Paul is praying for. You think about all the things Paul could pray for. Because this is the only letter he writes to this church. Of all things he could be praying for, he asked God to cause their love for one another to grow. And this is the agape love that Paul describes famously in the 1 Corinthians 13 passage that you hear at many weddings. It is the same agape love that John says defines who God is in his epistle. It's the same agape love that God is said to have for us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, it's a love that's defined by God and the gospel. It's not just love. There's nothing superficial or temporary about this kind of love that Paul wants for his church. The love Paul desires for the church is not weak. It's not easily abandoned when things change or get difficult. The love Paul desires is not the kind of love that is expressed only if it's reciprocated. It's not the kind of love that's just lovey-dovey. It's not the kind of love that you fake until you feel it. It's a love that comes with knowledge and discernment, he says. A love that's with knowledge and discernment. What does that even mean? Well, it's not a love that's defined or dictated by our ever-changing circumstances or our emotions. Because those change often, pretty easily. It's a love that remains steadfast. It's a love that is increasing because it is informed and shaped by the unchanging, perfect love that Christ has for me and for you. And what's at the core of Christ's love? Okay, well, if he's just to find that, it's grace. And what's grace in, a, in love language? Here's what it is, ready? When I say to you, God has shown you grace in Christ, what I mean is this. Jesus has made a commitment to love the unlovable. You'd be the unlovable in that sentence as would I. It's a commitment to love the unlovable. See, love without that kind of commitment is nothing more than just sentimentality, good wishes, loving thoughts your way. But commitment, right? I'm gonna love you no matter. Without love, without that affection, that's just duty. I was reminded of John Piper who told the story like, it'd be like this, it'd be like bringing flowers home to your wife and when she's, oh, thank you. And why, why are you doing this? Oh, I'm supposed to. It's my duty. Oh. It would feel a little bit different, I think, because it would be a little bit different. So we're not talking about sentimentality or duty because Jesus' love was neither sentimental and it wasn't just dutiful. It was gracious. It was love that delighted in those who didn't deserve it, who didn't earn it. It was love that was costly. But it was love that had the ability to transform the unlovable into something lovely. 
And when you choose to love this way, like this is the kind of love he's praying for, let them love each other this way. When you choose to love this way, insofar as we're empowered by God to do it because it's not something we naturally want to do. But as we choose to love this way, what does Paul say? We'll be able to approve what is excellent. It's a strange phrase. It can mean lots of things. I think if nothing else, it means without a sense of this kind of love, this gospel love, without gospel love governing you, you are actually unable to approve what is excellent. You are relatively confused about what's right and what's wrong. What's the right next decision? Especially in the context of relationships. Because you won't be determining what to do based on love that's from Christ, but on some other kind of false love. When you believe the gospel, something comes to control you. This is what Paul says. Did you know that? 2 Corinthians 5, this is the passage. 16 and 17 says, you are a new creation, the old has come, the, new, the old has gone, the new has come. Right before this, this is what it says. For the love of Christ controls us. So if you want to think like, well, what is excellent? What are we proving is excellent? I would argue it's the life of a slave. What do you mean by that? The love of Christ controls us because, why does it control us? We have concluded this, colon, so here comes the gospel. It's controlling me because I believe the gospel. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead to give me new life. That one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all. Why? That those who live and believe might no longer live for themselves but for other people no primarily for him who for their sake died and was raised and when you live for him you naturally love other people the love of christ is controlling us this is what paul's prayer is and so i ask us church like what is our prayer Because when the love of Christ controls you, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and that begins to guide you into all truth. And I think the truth is that of being a slave of Christ who is loved so much that they can love. So what should be our prayer for the church? What should we primarily be praying about? Should it be that we just like each other? That's not a bad thing. Everyone, we should like each other. That's great. Is that most important? Should it be that we approve what is, we make every right decision as a church and a people. That should be the prayer. We just do the right thing all the time, biblically perfect. That would be great. I mean, that's a good prayer. Is that primary? Is it that we should all agree on everything? We should just have full agreement on every issue, everywhere, all the time, secondary, primary, whatever. That would be great. Is that primary? No. What's primary is that we know the love of Christ. Not even that we're loving, that we know the love of Christ. As Paul prayed in his letter to the Ephesians, he actually wrote out a prayer. And it's beautiful, but consider the heart of it. He says, this is the reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory 
what may he do? That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and inner being. Why? I want to be powerful. He's going to make me powerful to do what? I'm going to do great things for you, God. So that. Okay. So that. That's such a huge phrase that's important, English teacher. So important, right? You're going to be strong so you can do what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love. Wait, where's this going? You may have strength, same strength, be strong strength to do what? To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. That's his prayer. A love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. I pray you will know the love of Christ so that you can do all the other things that you need to do. Wow. As a church, you know what? We can have all the right answers and we can hold all the right opinions and we can do all the right things. But if we don't have love for one another because of the love we have in Christ, we got nothing. We have nothing. This is why in John 13, Jesus says, you want to know how they're going to know you're my disciples? Your love for one another. So I ask you, church, brother and sister in Christ, how do people know you're a disciple of Jesus? Oh, it's because I have this sticker on the back of my car. It's because I voted for this person because I gave this amount of money or served this place. Is that, is that primary? Some of those things might be great. Or is it because you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because that's what Jesus says is primary and that's what Paul prays for for the church. May we love each other that way, but it's only possible if you truly know the love that Christ has for you. And I pray we all will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you have loved us in Christ. And as different as we are, Lord, as a people, as separated as we are even right now as a people, I pray, Lord, you will increase our affection for one another. And you will not do so, Lord, because it's the right thing, though it is. It'll be rooted in something much more powerful. That we will know the love that Jesus has for us. And being slaves of the King, we will love others as we have been loved. Thank you, Lord, for what you have built and what you are building. Thank you for the love you've shown us as individuals and as a church. And may we be characterized more than anything by the love and affection of Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. This morning as we come up to the table, we do this every Sunday as a means for you to tangibly preach the gospel to yourself and others. If you're not a Christian, it's really not for you. It doesn't make sense for you to confess that Jesus blood was shed for you and Jesus' body was broken for you because you're still the master of your life believing, I guess you can escape your sins, but you're gonna die in your sins unless you give your life to Christ. 
For those who are Christians, I pray that you will come to the table reminding yourself of everything God has done to fix the relationship that we broke. That he has shown us tremendous love and he continues to show you tremendous love because he knew all of your sins, past, present, and future when he went to the cross. And he covered them all. And that should give us really reason to rejoice. But more than that, he's not just saved us as individually, he's saved us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. So as people come up, remind yourself that like, you're not just doing this together because it's the time to do it together. You're doing it together because there is intended to be a God divinely appointed affection for one another. My prayers that we have that. Let's sing to our King. If you'd stand and we'll do that together.